Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast. Man, this is going to be a full, full, full show. Full to, <laughs> filled to the brim. I'm Ryan Young, and I'm joined... You know it by now. I'm joined by Max Brown, the former USC I'm, quarterback. I'm, I'm the vet. I'm the vet. By now, I'm yeah. We're in year two. Well, at the end of year two, this is uh, this is the duo right here. I I just assume that we're we continue to grow each week, and there's some new listener who has tuned in randomly and goes, "Who are these yahoos?" So <laughs> I'm Ryan Young. He is Max Brown, the former USC quarterback and our resident TrojanSports.com analyst. Max, how's it going? It is going great. A little shortened week. I know it's a busy week for you with all the recruiting stuff. So, hey, all, all you listeners, Ryan's got a full plate. But uh, as we all know, he's 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 taking it on head on, and it's uh, it's a good week. And anytime we uh, we get a win with a blow in blowout fashion, it's good on my end. Yeah, it, it really has thrown me out of the rhythm having the game on Sunday evening, and then we go straight into everything else. And I, I'm like kind of still putting the game in perspective, but also. Focusing on obviously rivalry week, USC UCLA this week, major stakes. USC controls its path to the Pac 12 championship game if it can win this week. We'll get into all that. But we have to look backward first, Max, because this is what we do each week. We, we break it down. And there were some major storylines from the game Sunday night USC wins for Washington State. And you would think, you would think in a game in which the Trojans were the first 35 points and win by 25, and force three turnovers, and get more sacks, and Keaton Slovis looks like the old Keaton Slovis. You would think that people would be feeling good, but that has somehow been not been the case this week because it just, it's just the way that things go. Uh, yeah. The running game was non-existent. The USC finishes with a net of five rushing yards, which is skewed because that includes the lost sack yardage. It was really... 25 yards on 16 carries by the running backs. Not good, obviously. But we got to talk about that. We got to talk about Keaton Slovis' big first half. Some interesting comments Tuesday by Graham Harrell. The defense, building off the previous game, looking strong. My guy, Nick Figueroa, with three sacks. Your guy. Talanoa Hufanga playing linebacker. The offensive line, not even practicing for two weeks. EA and the transfer portal madness, Max. We have so much to cover. <laughs> so much to cover, and it's funny hearing the, the, the Nick Figueroa deal. And I won't go as far as saying I was being a, a, a hater, but it's funny. You weren't. Uh, last, you weren't. La, last year it was Marquis Step was your guy. This year it's Nick Figueroa, <laughs> and so uh, Ryan Young's a, a champion of the people. But uh, no, it's, it was a busy, <laughs> uh, busy game, and it's been even a busy kind of 48 hours since the game like you said ea getting in the transfer portal which i'm sure we'll dive into oh, but yeah. yeah i think uh it's it's the blessing and the curse for all of us in usc territory in that you can have a a blowout win yet still walk away dissatisfied or not satisfied whatever the the proper proper english is there uh because the standard is so high at usc and i think we saw in the first half, like even you're putting up four touchdowns in the first half or first quarter, and you're like, all right, this is that's, that's what we should do. Versus most teams, it'd be everyone's going crazy and all that. As USC fans, we watch that, and it's like, all right, about time, about time, we take care of business. Yet we let off the gas in the second half, which, hey, like, like you kind of alluded to, I think there's something to be said about hey, it's skewed a little bit because there's the the human element of that, but it could have been a game that it was a. 53 to 3 win it easily easily could have been that it was not obviously and so uh still some unanswered things to be uh to be seen in the weeks coming up yeah 38 13 still a 25 point win so we're going to split the show today between the first half looking back and the second half looking forward i want to start right here with where we're at this dichotomy of reaction to the game and let me just say let me let me preface i get it i get it USC scored three points after halftime, had 60-some yards after halftime. It could have been, like you said, 50, 50 to 3 or whatever. It wasn't. And I get, I, get, I get the frustrations over the running game. I get it. It wasn't good. Hasn't been good all season. Listen, I, I was the one telling you for two weeks straight that these stats are fool's gold. The coaches are pointing to these stats and going, well, we rushed for 173 yards. And I'm looking at it and saying, well... I see some red flags in there, so I'm with you. I understand the frustration. But in my post-game column Sunday, I had to almost, not, not almost, I had to kind of side with Clay Helton 
And I, I understood his exasperation where he just got a 25-point win. His team was in control the whole game. We've been harping on Keaton Slovis all season. He looks great. Four touchdowns in the first five in the first quarter and a half. And after the game, Clay's getting back-to-back questions about the running game. And he's like, guys, just stop. we'll talk about it Tuesday. Let me watch the tape. But we just won a game. And I was with him in that. I didn't think the running game needed to be the story of the night Sunday. It's a perfectly fine story for t- Tuesday to dive into. So, Max, where do you fall in the scope of being impressed by the win and being concerned by the running game? And is it getting too much attention? Yeah, so many angles you can go with this. And here's where I'm at. I like your, your intro line of stats are, f- of, are fool's gold. And a lot of this a lot of this pressure, a lot of the frustration that Clay Helton might be having on a Sunday night in the Coliseum on December 6th, it's by way of what he is saying throughout the offseason when he is right. hammering home the fact that it's going to be improved run game. And after the Arizona game, he keeps going back to that uh, – 170 yard uh, or 160 yard whatever it is the, the the running game total that he wants and so he champions those talking points and then as a result us media members kind of hold him to that and I like how you said stats are fool's gold I think first Arizona the performance was not as good as Clay Helton alluded to and then in in, in two, uh, the game on Sunday against Wazoo I don't think the stats are as bad and when what I mean by as bad yes five yards rushing for a USC team you should get more obviously way more but how the game flowed um, I don't think it's as bad as you might think and what I mean by that is we kept talking all uh, after the game on the, on, the, on the radio show about, hey, why did Wazoo come out and man? Why did they come out and man? It's a crazy strategy. Makes no sense. I'm in that camp. But there's give and take to everything. If you come out and man coverage, that means that you are stacking the box. You are putting more defenders in the box. That means the winning plays are on the outside, on the edge, which we saw in that game. The winning plays aren't necessarily in the run game up the middle uh, when, the, when the box is packed. And, excuse me, don't get me wrong. USC should still be able to run the ball. I'm not saying that, but I just don't think it's as bad as uh, as it, it's made out to be. And then I think we also saw that with uh, Amon Ra's stat total, right? He had four touchdowns. I think he only had like 75 yards receiving. It's because the defense was doing great things, so the field position was shoulder, uh, shorter. You're not having to go uh, the extent, uh, the length of the field like we've seen in weeks past, and so there's just less yards to be had. And so Yes, it's bad. Yes, you shouldn't be rushing for five yards, but it's not as bad as I thought. And I also think um, you're just seeing uh, uh, in a week like this a coach that's just been on the hot seat for years now. And usually it's never like that. Usually if you're on a hot seat for more than a year, you're out of a job. Clay Helton is is a unicorn in that regard. The, The hot seat, and we haven't really even talked about it that much this year, but He's still been there, and as a result, he's always ha- in these post-game pressers and these in these uh, week press conferences. He's always having to find talking points to have some positivity to to fall back on. That's that's been his style. He hasn't necessarily been just a even keel Greg Popovich mentality where I'm not going to give you anything. And so when he does give you something, it, it's almost like he's eating his words a little bit because of the expectation he gave us, the media member, the fans, this offseason, the weeks prior, and then now this week where it, it, it doesn't come to fruition, he's kind of uh, kind of paying the price for it a little bit. No, those are all great points. And he has been the one driving the train that we're going to be a better running team. We are a better running team. Being a little bit stubborn when we've tried to point out that, hey, you actually only averaged 2.2 yards a carry aside from these three plays. And no, no, that's that's what we wanted. That was a good rushing performance. So you're absolutely right. He has set the stage for it to be more of a talking point this week. I guess where I come down on it and and what I felt after the game Sunday, and, and again, I want to reiterate, I was right there banging banging the, the bell. Is that the, the gong? The Be- bell, drum, gong, whatever. The drum. <laughs> Bang, I was banging the drum is what I was doing. I was banging the drum about the rushing stats being misleading this whole season. So I'm with you on this talking point, people. But here's where I felt after the game. I've wanted to see improvement from this team each week. And we saw it in the Utah game on the defensive side. And then we saw it, I thought, on the offensive side in other areas Saturday. We saw Keaton again look sharp and dismiss all questions about his arm. We saw some opportunity for the passing game and 
they took full advantage of it and show what they can still do whenever they get those looks. So I, I just wasn't in the mindset to have one negative aspect be the predominant storyline of a 25-point win. And that's just me. Also, I would say this. At some point, let's just accept that this is not a good running team. And it's not going to be a good running team because the season's almost over. There's one uh. regular season game left. So they're 4-0. They have one more game. It's not like we're a third of the way through the season and we're talking about, well, at some point it's going to bite them in the butt down the stretch. There is no stretch. We're, we're there. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we fell into the, the end of the season. There was no stretch. There's one game left. There's the Pac-12 championship game. And who even knows what the bowl picture is like? So there's two games left. If USC – there's two games, period, and you hope the second game is the Pac-12 title game. But – Let's just accept what it is. They're, they're not going to fix this issue this season, and it can be a talking point all off season. but they're 4-0, and they're one win for the championship game, and they're going to get there unconventionally if they do it without a great rushing attack, and that's where we're at. So yeah, I just don't get the um, immense hand-wringing over the situation because like, what are we really expecting at this point? Yeah, I like how you said accept where you're at, and obviously you don't want to just get content with hey USC is going to just going to be not a uh, not an elite kind of front front seven type team or anything like that. But uh, where where I'm at is I've gotten frustrated with just this. All right, we know Graham Harrell is from the air raid mentality, and that is a we. Like, or let me do a little history lesson, I guess. I'll backtrack a little bit. When I was at USC, USC fans were beyond frustrated that Lane Kiffin was not innovative with his offense and that it was too run right, run left. It, that was too boring. So then we took a step towards more innovative spread offenses with Sark, and we did some good things. And people were excited about that because USC is always going to have these athletes, always going to have people in their backyard that you just want to get athletes the ball in space. And then, and, and you tried to go a little bit halfway. Then from there, it was like, well, maybe we're too halfway. We're not going all in in the new school of football that we're seeing Clemson's. And we, we and, and the talk in like 2016 was, hey, Alabama made the jump to more spread concepts. We need to do that. And so what does is, what is Clay Helton do? And I know I'm, 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 I'm talking broad strokes here, but over a course of the couple of years, he goes and gets one of the brightest young air raid minds in the country. And everyone's excited, right? We're going to be more ha- We're going to be more modern. We're going to be uh, pass happy and all that. And even Graham Harrell has taken it a step back and implemented more of these run games. And so I get frustrated on both sides of the, of, of the token in terms of this is not an air raid team. It really is not an air raid team. Anytime you're seeing Eric Cromenhoek walk out there week, week in and week out with significant snaps, that is not the sign of an air raid team. It's also not run right, student body left, all those type of things. It's not that. It's a spread offense. And I think uh, that's not as sexy to say because it's not as like innovative or whatever. But to me, this is just a true spread offense. And back in like the 2010s, what did spread offenses give you? It kind of gave you a mix of, of both, right? Some weeks it's going to be pass heavy. Some weeks the, the run's going to be on. And that's where I get frustrated a little bit. And part of it is Clay Helton's fault, right? Or he, he, he definitely kind of in his talking point really hammers the run game and, and kind of talks to that side of the fan base that wants to, to live in the, the Pete Carroll and earlier days. And But then it's also, you, you have an offensive coordinator, a coordinator that by everyone's account, he's next up for a head coaching job at a respectable school, a Mountain West S school here in a couple years, if not this offseason. We'll see what happens. And so he's no slouch himself. And I think we just, everyone needs to take a step back. And it starts with, with Clay Helton as well, of him getting getting away from the talking points and just accepting that this is just a spread offense. I guarantee if you go to the Ohio States, the Clemsons and the Alabamas of the world and their radio shows, and yes, they're winning more football games than, or they're playing better football than USC, they're not talking about the nuances of uh, what what is the identity of the offense? No, we know the identity of the offense, and it's this modern, versatile, multiple uh, uh, position groups, uh, formation groupings that's going to have a different flavor, kind of kind of week in and week out. And with all that said, I know they need to run the ball more, but it's something that uh, it feels like we we talk ourselves in circles on everyone on USC fronts, uh, kind of week in and week out. Yeah, again, I'm not dismissing it. It's obviously a real concern. I'm just saying that it just, it just is what it is. And I'm just, the season's almost over, and I think they just need to find ways to win at this point. And then if, if you want the whole discussion to be big picture for the program, then I can get a little, a little more behind it. I understand that 
things are trending in the wrong direction with that regard. And I don't know what the answer is going to be next year. But that, to me, it's more of a question, big picture for next year. It's, you, know, you also have to mention the O-line situation this game. Okay, again, the Trojans went through a two-week COVID battle where they had, as was revealed today by Graham Harrell, today being Tuesday, they had no offensive linemen available at practice last week. They didn't do any team periods. They didn't practice together as a unit at all. Cortland Ford was the only offensive lineman available during the week, and you can't have one offensive lineman in a team period, so he was off on his own doing individual work. The rest of them were, as it sounds, quarantined at a hotel and kind of all got released on Saturday, may have got through one final workout Saturday, and then they played a game. So... That's crazy. I cannot imagine just a legitimate USC football practice with no offensive line. No, it it was – we'll get there in one second. I want to go deeper into that, but just to stick with with the running game. So you have that reality. You're starting a true freshman left guard, Cortland Ford, who has not played all season. You end up playing a true freshman right guard, Jonah Monheim, after Liam Jimmins gets hurt, 17 plays in. So you now have two freshmen on a unit that didn't practice together all week and – you won by 25 points, you put up 38 points, and you face a team that was giving you man looks and advantageous opportunities for your passing game. So I just wouldn't get so bent out of shape over it this week. If you want to get bent out of shape over it in the big picture, I get it. But this week, I just, I mean, it is what it is. And you could tell that Graham Harrell was frustrated by everything he was hearing because by the time we asked him the first question about it on Tuesday, he gave an answer that kind of went viral on Twitter. He said, he was asked, what is your level of concern about the run game? He said, well, I think when a quarterback goes 17-17 to to end the half and throws five touchdowns, you're doing some things well. So that's our level of concern. And 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 that's the type of answer, maybe not that blunt, (laughs) but that's the lane that I need Clay Helton in. So then this narrative doesn't happen. Like, I respect the hell out of that by by Graham. He's saying, all right, SC fans, myself included, like, screw you guys. Like, we just had a great win, a a blowout win in many accounts, and you're nitpicking, sure, but he knows, and those coaches know how much time they put in, and they're like, all right, sweet, we're going to enjoy this one, and and screw you guys. And I, I, I respect it. So I tweeted that quote out, and I did not expect the backlash that was to come for it because I, I kind of got what he was saying. He, he was saying exactly what I've been saying. Like, I mean, guys, we just we won the game. Our quarterback was lights out in the first half, and we won the game. And so, no, we're not overly concerned. But the reaction was not good. In fact, the parents of Keenan Christian and USC running back commit Brandon Campbell both retweeted it with some critical or questioning comments. So it didn't resonate well with the team base, apparently. And I guess maybe that's that's the one area we haven't talked about yet is USC has to keep some people happy. They have Marquis Stepp now in his third year, again, still not getting fully unleashed. They have Keenan Christian, who's been marginalized most of the season. And they're trying to recruit running backs to this offense. So I think that's been one of the major reasons why Clay Helton has been propping up the running game in his comments is because they want to be able to keep a four-star Brandon Campbell in this class and be able to keep recruiting running backs and not have all this attention dwelling on you guys don't run the ball well just week after week after week. So I kind of get some of the strategy and dilemma they're facing there. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, especially if – Stephen Carr and Vi Malapai, who have the option to come back next year due to the NCAA just wiping out this season for eligibility purposes, if they come back, I just cannot see this whole thing resetting next year with with those four guys in this logjam and maybe five if they can they sign Brandon Campbell next week. Yeah, it's a fair point. And uh, something that, I mean, if I was a running back recruit, even if I was from Southern California, I would be very wary of that. I mean, USC is a fantastic program. And, and I mean, it, it's going to recruit itself. And But the running back by committee deal, we've seen it put a ceiling on a lot of running backs in the past decade in terms of their career. I mean, even when I played, you're talking um, – 
Justin Davis or Buck Allen or even I mean Stephen Carr the past three three year four years or so he was the talk of the town as a true freshman but then when you go running back by committee sure it keeps everyone in the program and I was about to say keeps everyone happy but I don't even know if it goes that far but then as a result you're not tapping into your ceiling as if you would go to a school like a Wisconsin or in Alabama or even a I mean Washington's running back by committee up there but even like a Stanford in our own conference where they have their dude and then they have their change of pace back but they're not really going three backs and they're definitely not going four backs and that's the conversation USC's having I totally get the recruiting strategy with that regard but at the end of the day when you do running back by committee sure it keeps everyone content in the fact that they're the flow of the game but it's not. It, the reality is they're, they're not being the main stage like it has been with other programs around the country. And I think that's just something you have to weigh as a running back recruit. And I'm sure a lot of these guys that are big recruits are t- probably telling themselves, hey, I'm going to be the guy that changes that. I'm going to be so good that I'm going to change the mold of, of, of how the coaching staff's wired. But I know Clay Hilton well enough. And, I, and, and sure, there's something to be said about having depth and keeping guys fresh. But at the end of the day, Clay Hilton is not a head coach that historically has done a, I have my bell cow back, and even if my recruiting and my depth takes a hit, I'm going to go with the, I'm still going to stick with the kind of running back by committee every year, no matter what. Yeah, I, I think there's more to be lost than gained by doing this meritocracy in the backfield. Uh, I think you have to make some people unhappy for the overall good and just have your guy go with him and then fill out the remaining pieces uh, as you want. But its uh, I, I don't think it's done them a service. Well, we can't dwell on the running game the entire podcast. Let's move on. Let's go back to the offensive line situation, though, because you know none of us knew last week what the, what the picture was with that group. Obviously, we knew that the O-line was the principally affected unit of the COVID situation. We knew that overall there were four positive tests and seven guys in contact tracing quarantine. So 11 total. We didn't know if they were all from the offensive line or how it broke down. But uh, anyways, that was the question during the game. We learned pregame that Andrew Voorhees is not there. Justin Dietrich is not there. And Liam Douglas is not there. So you're down one starter and two key backups. And that's why you get Cortland Ford starting. And then that's why you get Jonah Monheim as the first guy up when Liam Jimmins goes down. But I asked Clay Helton after the game, and I thought it might be something he'd, he'd want to, to clarify because it, it could be used as an excuse or at least perspective. I said, how much did the offensive line work together this week? And he didn't. He just totally didn't answer the question. I've also asked about, so what was your impression of the, of the two freshman offensive linemen and how much did that unit work together? And he only answered the first part, and then I was, uh, my time was up, so I didn't even get to follow up. So I said, all right, well, I'll ask Graham Harrell the same question Tuesday. And Graham just pulls the entire curtain back and, <laughs> and paints the full picture because well, we had seen That's a sign t- of a great question. <laughs> we had seen tweets from Brett Neeland saying, man, only if people knew what we went through last week. And Jalen McKenzie saying, man, if only. And so I knew that there was something to this regard there. And Graham, Graham says, uh, how much did we work together? Not at all. <laughs> we, we did no team periods. There was no offensive linemen involved in practice. And the guys got out of the hotel Saturday and played the game Sunday. Uh, Max, can you imagine just transport back to your time playing if if that was your offensive line situation entering the game? Yeah, I mean, it would have made for some fun practices, I guess, just because it would have been seven on seven the whole time. Right. Um, which I guess is a good point in its own is you can still get good, like relatively good work. Don't get me wrong. It's still not the same without a fo- uh, without an offensive line. But from an outsider's perspective and people that have not been around a, a, a football practice, like the show can still go on. You just don't have any team periods, which don't get me wrong, is very weird. And um, I mean, I, I, they must have done either uh, like tons of backup defense alignment just to get a look because you want the the opposing uh, you want our defense to get a look as well but it's super weird I mean once again it's 2020 so I remember back in back in August when the threshold for 
how many guys could practice at once was like whatever it was. It was like 12 or something like that. And I remember sitting over here like trying to get creative of how you could run a practice with only having like groups of 12 and all that. And luckily we're not there, but can't imagine not having a uh, not having the, your offensive line there. And then credit those young guys. I mean, Cortland Ford, Jonah Monheim uh, stepping in there. It's not easy to do. It's not, I'm not saying Wazoo was, uh, had any groundbreaking talent up front, and luckily it was them and maybe not a Utah team or something like that. But credit those guys, and I think it's a big deal that those young linemen got experience because that was one of the unknowns with this team. There was a lot of knowns with every position group of USC. One of the unknowns was, hey, if, if one of the USC offensive linemen goes down, that's not one of the interior guys. So it, it, if anyone besides Justin Dietrich is called to play on play in this second unit, like how do things play out? And it's a lot of these familiar faces on the offensive line as starters. But after that, guys that just don't have experience. And so moving forward, I think that's really valuable for their growth, for their development, for their confidence. Just as a guy speaking who's been in their shoes, not offensive line shoes, but as a ba- in a backup role, um, it does a lot for your confidence and your perspective when you get real-life Coliseum reps because then you go back to the practice field and now that your practice field isn't the end-all, be-all, isn't the big, the, the pinnacle kind of in your mind. Now it's just kind of, all right, now I got to gotta go do my business and I know what it's like to be out there in real-life battle. And in the same token, I think we saw Jaden Delora, Wazoo's quarterback, maybe get uh, – the, the lights shined a little too bright for him. The Coliseum lights shined a little too bright for him. And I think it, it, it's it's worth pointing out for young players getting real-life Coliseum reps in real-life action, not mop-up duty, uh, how big that is for their uh, for their development. So I thought that was huge. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about uh, Keaton Slovis real fast. Like I said, 18 straight completions at one point. Obviously, the five touchdowns in the first half. The one was obviously a, a quick pitch uh, forward so it's more of a run play but it counts as a pass but really some nice balls I thought his second and fourth touchdowns to Amon Ra were just perfect just right where they had to be and then that dime to Tyler Vaughn's down the sideline was just a thing of beauty what did you like from Keaton Slovis's performance and are, can we safely put to rest all questions about his arm <laughs> Uh, I liked his performance. Um, thought it was consistent. Thought he was doing everything uh, he needed to do. Loved the throw. I believe it was Amon Ross' second touchdown. Uh, the arc he put on that ball, the the, the slot throw. Uh, that, to me, right when I saw that throw, it reminded me of like the Russell Wilson fade throws that are getting a lot of talking points today where you put a ton of arc on it. Not too much arc, but enough arc where your receiver can adjust and you're always giving him a shot. And that, that's kind of the... The, the picture that flashed in my mind, but loved loved his performance. Um, I, I don't know if this one performance puts some of those, I'll call them, and I even, I feel bad saying this, but I'll call them the sophomore slump talking points. Uh, I don't know if one game puts those behind us entirely because I still think a lot of the things that Ryan and I talked about of maybe some of those things being mental, like uh, of, of I don't think it was mechanical. I don't think it was injury. I don't think it was pain or anything like that. And so I don't think you get over those things with uh, with just one performance, but I do think it, it, uh, it this type of performance goes a long way. And if they're telling the, the truth about the molding of the balls and, and fresh footballs and the equipment managers, I think I said this on this podcast, the 430 kickoffs in the Coliseum, the you, air is perfect. You did say that. It's dry. I'm telling you, you're never going to throw a better football in terms of leather quality. I know this is crazy for you fans, but I'm telling you, for picky quarterbacks like myself, for leather quality, there's nothing better than 430 kickoffs in the Coliseum. And so maybe that was the difference. But impressed with Keaton. Don't think we can take him for granted. Ten touchdowns, two picks, um, 1,200 yards, doing some good things. I don't think we've seen the big step or the big leap that we were hoping for preseason, but that's getting a little greedy. I'm totally content with number nine's play right now. I dare say that no other podcast in the USC stratosphere will give you better le- <laughs> leather quality insights than you just and got I know, right there. And I know you listeners probably think I'm crazy, but if only you knew, <laughs> and to quote the offensive line, USC <laughs> offensive lineman, 
the time I would spend Friday afternoon seeing the footballs Cody Kessler would pick and being like, Coach Helton, man, like, come on, help me out. And the managers being like, Brownie, we feel you. Like, this ball is fresh out of the package. No one likes this. I had the kickers. I had the punters coming over to me and being like, hey, can I can I kick with Brownie's football and not Kessler's football? Like, <laughs> we had this we had this down to a science, and so glad my uh, – Glad my perspective is of use uh, five years later. Tremendous, tremendous. Um, f- final thought on the offense. Are you stunned, stunned as me, that any defense would would go to, to man looks and give them uh, these opportunities in the passing game when it seems like everyone has decided that the way to beat this team or try to control this offense is to not do that? Yes, I was shocked. Uh, doesn't make sense to me, but I'm also of the mindset that these college coaches, no matter how, even if us fans think, ah, oh, they're they're so dumb or whatever, like there's always a method to the madness. And and to me, you do something that a move like that if you have like absolutely no confidence in your ability to stop the run, because that is the most demoralizing thing for a defensive coordinator is when you are just getting absolutely just pummeled by the run game and you can convince yourself that hey we have to pick like the lesser of two evils kind of thing and we'll take our chances on the outside and maybe Keaton Slovis has an off day and maybe they like the the edginess of their corners which I know I mean that was one of the worst secondaries in the Pac-12 so that doesn't even make sense but that, that's at least where I, maybe the, the defensive coordinators coming with, with things in that regard uh, and it was even weird in two respects. One, because you knew Wazoo's secondary was, was lacking, but then on the other side, uh, rewind to 2018, and that was kind of the blueprint Wazoo brought into the park is, hey, uh, we're going to force a true freshman quarterback in JT Daniels to beat us with his arm. We're not going to let USC run the ball on us, and that game plan in many respects was very good because USC did not run well, if I recall that, uh, and they stifled the passing game to decent uh, respect. What they got crushed on was the big plays. They they were hanging on, they were hanging on, and then it felt like, hey, a fade ball to Tyler Vons or a fade ball to Michael Pittman, and that ultimately um, turned the course of the game. Actually, the uh, the, the roughing the passer on, on Porter Augustine ultimately, uh, or lack thereof, turned the course of the game. But I digress. Uh, I still think the strategy is a head-scratcher for me. I'd rather do the bend but don't break defense even if USC rushes for 200 yards I, I don't think you can put your your guys on an island with Tyler Vaughn's Amon Ross St. Brown in this receiving core and USC took advantage and I always look at decisions like that of okay what would the opposing team want me to do or what yeah, would they what, right. would, what, what would make their eyes light up and if you give this USC offense man coverage that is a dream come true for Keaton Slovis and Graham Harrell Make a great point, though. Um, Washington State did get gouged on the ground by Oregon, I believe it was, like 260-some yards in their previous game. So that was probably fresh in mind, and that was probably the reason that they did that. But again, that you know, to steer it back to the running game one last time, USC didn't come into the game expecting to have this abundance of great man coverage looks. They went heavy in the pass game. They had the O-line who hadn't practiced all week. And I think that that all contributed some to the fact that they only ran the ball 16 times. And it doesn't directly answer why they couldn't do anything with those 16 carries, but that's why it wasn't more of a predominant factor. But enough about that. Let's, uh, let's flip sides of the ball. So the USC defense, back-to-back, really encouraging games. They uh, keep Utah in check, obviously, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. It's been a while. And then they follow it up and look really good against Washington State, which is a capable offense. They've been putting up points in their first two games, and they come out with 13 this week. The defensive pressure was good again. Uh, I mentioned Nick Figueroa's three sacks. But really the story was the lack of linebackers and the adjustment Tyler Lando made to have Talano Hufanga essentially playing the middle linebacker role for much of the game and uh, bringing in extra DBs to, to fill it out. What did you think of of that strategy, and what was your first reaction when you saw Hufanga lining up that way? I loved it, and I think you got to commend Todd Orlando for making that move, not only from an X's and O's standpoint, but that's a ballsy move. I mean, you talk about uh, a newer defensive coordinator, a fan base that, uh, let's keep it real, is oftentimes critical of, uh, of their coordinators, 
And to, I mean, that's not an easy move to make with a limited offseason. You're putting a guy out of positions, not going to have tons of reps. And I think it speaks to how good Talanoa Funga is. But I love that. Uh, I love that scheme. I would expect them to implement that more moving forward because not only because of what Talanoa Funga can do, but because of the depth concerns at linebacker. And you got to like the performance from Max and Chase Williams. I think those are guys that we've seen over the past year or so be able to step in, be able to do, to, to do some good things, and they deserve some reps. And, and I like that package, the true dime package, and it's something that might be their competitive advantage too because that's not something from an offensive standpoint that you're prepping for that much. Not a lot of teams in college football roll out a dime defense. It's common in the NFL. You just don't see it that much at the college level. So love the move. I think it speaks to the depth of the safety position. I think it's, uh, it speaks to how much Todd Orlando loves this secondary. But then I also think it speaks, once again, to the, the depth concerns at inside linebacker, especially with EA entering the transfer portal. And, I mean, with EA gone, if uh, assuming that's the deal that's happening there, if one injury happens, you have to put quality guys on the field and, and try to get your best 11 on the field, so to speak. And uh, obviously with Talanoa at the linebacker, that gives you the best chance to put your best 11 on the field. I think Tio deserves a lot of credit, and you know, to hold a good Washington State offense at about 260 yards, whatever it ended up being, in a game where they're down almost instantly, and you know, those that's usually the kind of games where teams pack on some meaningless stats late as they're you know trying to close the gap however much they can, and to to still hold them to that low of a yardage total while playing your your star safety at linebacker uh i think we have to start giving orlando some credit for his ability to adjust on the fly and his ability to get this unit progressing and improving each week and we didn't see it so much from week one to week two but we saw it from two to three and three to four and you got to be encouraged the one thing I will go, go, say that's yeah. uh, kind of funny to me, and this will be an off-season breakdown I, I, I can do uh, I can do for us, but uh, it's funny because a lot of what I'm visually seeing from this defense, and once again, don't quote me on this, I want to break it down in the off-season, but it doesn't seem drastically different than what Clancy was doing. And what I mean by that is, if you recall... Uh, USC fans, I think it was 2016, I believe it was, may have been 2018, 2016, I think it was, um, Clancy rolled out a dime package against Wazoo, he had one of my best buds, Matt Lopes, come in as that additional safety body, Mike Leach made him pay at that time, but the idea of being able to be innovative and having it be, having your backbone be a blitzing defense, what we're seeing, That, in many respects, was Clancy. We're seeing it with Todd Orlando. Sure, there's nuances that are different, personnel groups and position groups that are slightly different. But the overall approach in terms of the defensive calls, to me, from an offensive viewpoint, is very similar. Excited to break it down. But I also think it's a testament to uh, when you get a new voice in there, a new energy, Todd Orlando's running around, giving those guys... uh, some juice and a secondary that's getting older, more confident, more experienced. The trickle-down effect of that helps everyone on the defensive side of the ball. For sure. And speaking of the D-backs moving forward, USC will lose Greg Johnson for the rest of the season. So you're going to see some more of, of your guy Max, who you like. <laughs> Great Williams name. will be in a larger role. And, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll see how they, they keep progressing through the rest of the season. Any other major takeaways on the defensive side before we get into some bigger picture stuff and look at UCLA? Well, let's see. Love the turnovers. Um, I mean, those are plays that show the experience of a secondary. Talanoa Funga is not making that interception as a freshman. I mean, he was like blitzing, then he drops back into coverage, does the one-handed pick and the hurdle. Like that shows the experience. And then similar with Elijah Griffin on the outside, to drive on that route. It was a true RPO from the offensive side of the ball. I mean, shows the experience, and you have to be so, so excited moving forward um, with that group. And defensively, you already touched on Nick Figueroa's three sacks. And, um, yeah, love, love the defensive performance. Well, let's, let's talk about EA then. Um, obviously, the bombshell Monday morning, junior linebacker, Pali EA, Natote, in the transfer portal. And the timing, I guess, confused everybody, certainly confuses me. And we still don't know quite why. 
He's choosing now with one game left in the regular season with his team uh, on track toward the Pac-12 championship game appearance if they win this week. Why now? And people were getting a little curious about his extended stay in the concussion protocol. And maybe there's more to that situation. Maybe there's more behind the scenes. Oh, there's clearly more behind the scenes that we don't know because it was a surprise. It hasn't totally clicked for him. There was tons of preseason hype, and this was going to be his year, and it didn't really take effect right away in the first game. He gets hurt in the second game. He misses the next two, and now he's in the portal. What do you make of, of this sequence of events and his decision? Yeah, uh, I want to qualify everything I'm about to say is I've never talked to Pellier outside of an interview, uh, a radio interview, and so I, I don't know the guy personally, but what I do know is I do know what it's like to be a five-star guy and walk into a USC program with tons of expectations, and I do know what it's like to uh, maybe not perform up to those expectations or not have the outcome that you want, and to me, from an outsider's perspective, um, Pallier is a guy that from the second he walked on campus, he was supposed to be the next USC great. And he's been given many on-field chances to make that happen. And it hasn't clicked for him. And it's been across two different coaching staffs. And I, I as I said out loud, a little hesitant because I am confident that if he stuck with it and stayed healthy this year, that potentially the better like clicking point, that turning point for him was, was ahead. But I also just know that when you are of a guy of his stature and things have not clicked, there's just a different level of pressure that 99% of uh, college football players in general, and then most guys even on the USC team, don't have to deal with when you are a four-star recruit, which is still a big recruit, but it's not the top guy. And I think, um, I don't know how Pallier is wired, but given some of the comments around coaches about his weight, about his commitment to the game, that I wouldn't be surprised if there are some ego and some... Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Some ego um, thoughts in him that he's saying, man, I can be better than this. I can do better than this. Why am I not playing? He's seen his backups get in there and have success. We've also seen Todd Orlando be a little bit more blunt with his talking points over the last year about Pally EA, both good and bad. And maybe that doesn't doesn't connect well with a guy like EA. I also know, and Ryan, you can speak to this better, that his brother has been uh, committed to SC for a while. And it sounds like talks there have have cooled and have been cooling for a while and so if he's looking ahead yeah if he's looking ahead about the prospects of playing with his brother and maybe that not coming to light and all that coming together and he's saying you know what i need i need to get out i want to get out i need a fresh start i need to hit the reset button and into that i totally get that i remember when i was leaving sc uh having kind of some tough thoughts and, and not living up to the or not uh, not walking away from usc with the the performances that I that I or I guess the uh, the production that I, I wish I would have uh, that, that wears on guys and I think there is something to be said about a guy just wanting to start fresh and wanting to to get out. I I don't agree with the timing. The timing's still weird for me, but I at least can level or at least start to piece together, puzzle together some of the thought processes from observing from afar uh, the, a guy like Pallier over the last three years. Yeah, it's really the, the timing that is the question. Here's what we know. Um, I thought that he was pretty sincere in the preseason and talking about his relationship with Todd Orlando, and I thought he had one of the best comments about Orlando of any of the players where he just said he's, he's brutally honest at all times. You know exactly where you stand. He's a straight shooter, um, and that makes you want to play really hard for him because he's up front and honest with you. And I thought that was a really good comment and probably and b- boded well for their relationship. And then you had the coaching staff just s- s- really hyping up EA all preseason and saying he's going to a different level. I can't wait to see him play this year. So I didn't sense any tension there. Um, so what else do we know? We know that as recently as last Thursday, Clay Helton was still telling us that EA is still in the concussion protocol and questions were starting to mount. People were going, man, it's been like almost three weeks and he's still in the protocol. So I don't know if that was a cover. I don't know if he really was in the protocol. To, to that point, I'm not I'm not questioning it. I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just saying I don't know. Um, 
but clearly I didn't wake up Monday and say I'm transferring. This was in the works for a few days. It does sound like the USC staff was hoping it wouldn't come to this because Clay Helton has said twice now the door is open for him. I told him we're here for him. The door is wide open to return. Uh, I hope he stays, but he has to make that call. So at least from, from their framing, they're hoping this isn't a done deal yet. But the timing is just really confusing. And, Max, you, you brought up his brother, so let me just explain that situation real fast. His brother, Ma'a Noteote, committed to USC like two years ago in this 2021 class to obviously an entirely different defensive staff. And for whatever reason, whether it was on his end or USC's end, the, the staff just not having the same evaluation on his upside as the previous staff, things got really distant, and it's been clear for many months, six, seven, eight months. It's been clear for a while that he was not going to be in this class. Took USC stuff off his profile. He talked about looking at other options. He never formally decommitted, um, but it's just been clear for a while he wasn't going to be in this class. And I think if EA comes out and has a monster season, maybe that's something that is not a factor and he focuses on his own career and finishes things out. But maybe when things still aren't going great and his brother uh, is not going to be joining him here, maybe that all conspires to to make him rethink things. But I cannot give you any theory as to the timing with one game left in the regular season. I'll give one theory, and uh, I don't know this to be true, but I just can speak from my own experience. I know for me when I was transferring, I very much wanted to get into a program at the start of the semester. A lot of teams, some teams are semester, some teams are quarters. But for semester schools like USC, in order to practice in spring ball, um, you have to be enrolled in school uh, in the semester system. And normal semesters, I remember for me at Pittsburgh, then uh, school started January 3rd. So I had to have all my ducks in a row, know where I was transferring basically before Christmas to then transfer and enter a school January 3rd. Most guys are not like that. Most guys are not uh, proactive in the transfer process like that. But maybe EA is thinking that potentially of wanting to get to another school and transfer excuse me for the for the start of the next semester uh that is one theory because i know that was front of mind for me it feels like this is different just with 2020 obviously there's a season going on right now when i had to do it we were already like this was the dead period or this was just i mean nothing was going on right now and so that's one theory potentially but who knows no that makes that makes sense it makes as much sense as anything so it could certainly be that so just to close the book on that, what's this mean if he doesn't come back for USC? Well, again, they're really thin this year, and, and that's not going to change. But as we've stated, the season's almost over. And if you uh, play Hufanga at linebacker, uh, you do what you got to do. But they should have Kanai Malga and Raylan Goforth both active this week and hopefully for the rest of the season. So you should be okay there. And then next year, you expect to get Jordan Iacefa. You expect to get Solomon Pupu and Elijah Winston all back healthy. Taylor Katoa has been hurt this year too. You bring in Julian Simon, the four-star commit. They're still working to try and flip Rajon Davis, the four-star LSU commit. So I think big picture numbers-wise should be fine. You still don't have a lot of proven experience. It's, it's going to be Malga and Goforth and Iosefa, who are the only guys that you really even know what you're getting next year and I think uh, it, it may still it may still be the position on the defense you're most worried about but uh, n- n- numbers wise they should be okay uh, obviously the bottom line is that you have a, a guy who's a five star guy like you mentioned Max who a lot was expected from and it looks now like it will just never really come to fruition here in this program Without a doubt. Yep, wish him uh, nothing but the best. And I think it is worth noting that Clay Helton, how he runs his program is the door's still open. With some guys, it's, hey, you enter the transfer portal, you're all but gone. Uh, Clay Helton is pretty welcoming or or modernized with his approach and uh, still could come back, but doesn't look like it right now. Right. So 
Um, we've taken enough time without talking about the game this week, UCLA, the rivalry <laughs> game, and a really intriguing one because the Bruins are playing well. They've won three out of four. They've won two straight. The only loss in that four-game stretch was a 35-38 loss to Oregon in Eugene. So really a nice four-game stretch overall for Chip Kelly's program. Let's just start there, Max. What do you think is the step that the Bruins have taken this year under Kelly that they hadn't been able to take to this point? Yeah, well, the step they took over the weekend is the first time uh, a UCLA team under Chip Kelly is above 500. So they're three and two, and that's kind of the yep. that's kind of the talking point that they're uh, they're they're rolling with uh, this week. And once again, it's a similar thought process to a year ago in that UCLA starts off terribly in 2019, and then they're able to battle back and 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 get some encouraging points in their roster to not have it be an absolutely abysmal season last year. And then this year. I remember watching the week one game against Colorado, and at that point I was like, I mean, Colorado's still Colorado. Obviously, uh, they've done some good things. It was a high-scoring game, but I was like, if you're UCLA, you cannot lose that game. And I was like, all right, here we go again for the Bruins kind of thing. And yet they've battled back. They have two losses, both by a combined of of nine points, I believe it was. They've had to dip into their quarterback uh, depth a little bit, which is never easy ever, but especially in a condensed season. But... In terms of the biggest difference for me, it's kind of 1A and 1B. And 1A is the defense. Their defense is playing some football now. They're able to get after the quarterback. They're able to uh, do some different pressure schemes and really make it tough on opposing offenses, which is which was just not the case the past couple years. I mean, visually looking at this UCLA team on defense, especially you could see a drop-off in talent that, in the past years. This year, it's not so much. They, they are flying around. They are getting after the quarterback, doing some good things. And then I think the 1B point, and I just kind of alluded to it on myself, is just the eye test. When you watch this UCLA team, they, they don't visually look like they're taking a back seat in terms of talent to any of the opponents that they have played versus the past couple years. I mean, especially from a guy like me that when I first got to USC, that was in the Brent Huntley days. That was when, I mean, you look at that 2015 UCLA defense. I mean, they have a lot of starters in the NFL to this day, five years later on that defense. That was a very talented team. They lost that in the early years of Chip Kelly and at the end of the Jim Mora era. It feels like they're scratching and clawing to get that back. They have some talent. They can do some things. And defensively, that is the biggest step that they have made uh, so far in 2020. They hold Arizona to 10 points and then Arizona State to 18 points. Uh, The Sun Devils did get over 400 yards of offense, but uh, couldn't couldn't capitalize. How about... Dorian Thompson-Robinson, have you seen him take a step this year as, as the quarterback? Yeah, that's the, the interesting uh, talking point as well. I have not seen him take a take a step, to be honest. I've seen him do some good things, but it's kind of the similar – I guess I, sh- I, shouldn't, I shouldn't start that, 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 that rough. I, I feel like he's better than where he was a year ago, but he's still erratic. He's still got – when he's on, it, it feels like he's one of the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12. And when he's off – it feels like, man, they should be calling in the backup. And I think that is the interesting point. If you look at, if you're talking to UCLA fans, there is a section of their fan base that feels like maybe they should go to the backup. The backup, Chase Griffin, a guy I've known since he was, dang, eight years old uh, when he was ball boying some of the Elite 11 circuits back in the day. He's more of a game manager, which I know co- comes with a negative connotation, but I mean that in the biggest positive uh, I can with him. It's He's not going to turn the ball over. He's not going to make the critical error. He's going to execute the the reads and kind of do what he's told to do on paper versus Dorian Thompson-Robinson. He's a quarterback that he's totally off script. That's when almost where where he's at his best and when he's at his worst is off script. And there are some people, especially with this UCLA defense, that are calling UCLA to maybe be a little bit more kind of – ball control, go with Chase Griffin, kind of just do what you're supposed to on offense. Don't lose the game on offense. Trust your defense and go with that mold. It is interesting, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think the PFF grades had DTR as one of the worst quarterbacks in terms of uh, like grading out in the Pac-12, and they had Chase Griffin as one of the best quarterbacks. And obviously, Chip Kelly uh, elected to go back to DTR. I still feel like that's the right move because DTR's ceiling is so high that if he gets the right, if he gets the right spark, if he gets going in the right direction, uh, a win against USC, crosstown rivals could get him going down the right path. 
the team could take a step as a whole. I don't know if you're getting there right now with Chase Griffin in terms of taking that championship step, but at the end of the day, they have two quarterbacks that they both like, two quarterbacks they can go to. I think the leash got shorter with DTR uh, when he was away for COVID reasons, but he's still the guy. He's still a dangerous quarterback, but he's also a guy that's susceptible to turnovers, and I'm sure that's what Todd Orlando's telling this USC defense. Yeah, and I guess the the fear for USC fans obviously is going to be that he's still a mobile quarterback, and that is still often a problem for this defense. Haven't really been tested in that way the last two games, but it's always in the back of the mind that this is that matchup that you fear for the Trojans on third and longs or third and anything. That they're going to leave that middle of the field open, and uh, it's going to be there for scrambling. How much of a factor is that when you evaluate this matchup? Certainly a factor. No, great, uh, great point for sure. I always have to qualify it with, yes, USC struggles against dual threat quarterbacks, but that's why dual threat quarterbacks are kind of the new age, right? Everyone struggles in some respect uh, when you have to answer for that uh, for the legs of the quarterback. So, um, but but I think it's a good test, right? I think week one and week two uh, versus both Arizona schools, we saw the quarterback leak out and get out of the pocket. Why was that the case? Well, oftentimes it was because the USC blitz packages were not getting home. Well, what was the big turning point uh, in the Utah game was that those blitzes started to get home and you started to get pressure on the quarterback. Uh, It's a lot easier to keep your blitzing lanes when you're actually getting past the offensive line and those schemes and those calls by Todd Orlando are actually hitting, which they have the past couple weeks. And I don't care how, how, how fast you are, it is tough to get away from some of those rushers and so I think it's a good test where USC's improved the first four games they're chipping right along doing some good things can they carry that over against a dual threat quarterback continue to get home with some of those pressures that's definitely something uh, for me to look out on and then I think on the flip side of that is yes you pay attention to DTR but Demetric Felton their running back slash receiver Mr. Do-It-All number 10 for them he is their leading rusher by far. I don't have it in front of me, but it's it's well over uh, 100 rushing attempts, I believe. And then he's their third leading receiver in terms of uh, in terms of production as well, if I re- if I recall correctly. So they are going to get him the ball. And sometimes you worry schematically as a defense if you put so much attention to, hey, we got to stop number ten, stop number ten, that you might. Uh, it might it might might get away from you the fact that wait you still got to worry about the quarterback as well so Felton certainly a playmaker uh, UCLA definitely likes both offensive tackles they have too and Sean Ryan and Alec Anderson they've graded out well so UCLA is leveling up a little bit I think they've been on the bottom of the conference the past years I think now they're they're definitely in the middle I'm not going to say they're a championship level team but it's certainly a team where uh, USC can't. Uh, can't let off the gas uh, at all this week. Well, I just talked about uh, my confidence or, or what I've seen in Orlando uh, adjusting and, and progressing this defense. So this will be a, a good gauge of that. And if he can learn from those first two games and some of the vulnerabilities they showed against mobile quarterbacks and get that cleaned up, that will be very telling. So what I'm curious by is – from a player's standpoint, is there any any carryover effect either way from the outcome of last year's matchup where USC trounced UCLA 52 to 35, had four wide receivers all go over 100 yards each? It was really the the crowning moment of the offense's ascent of the second half of last season and, and the best it's looked in the Graham Harrell era. Is that in the minds of players this week, and does that matter at all? It does. I'm not going to sit here and say it's groundbreaking, but uh, for reference, with the 50-0 to 2011 win that USC and Matt Barkley and Robert Woods had over UCLA, a good UCLA, or like respectable UCLA team, that was still being talked about until, uh, I mean, pretty much 2014, 2015 for me, right? It was, hey, we got to – 
put up 50 again. Hey, we got to let them know just like 2011, like those type of talking points. Those are the type of things that get you up. Those are the type of things that you're saying pregame, you're saying in pump up speeches. Um, those are the type of things that I'm sure Keaton Slovis is telling the receivers of, hey, let's have another performance like last year. It's 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 somewhat of a uh, confidence deal. And then especially with recruiting right around the corner, like literally right around the corner. It's always right around the corner, but especially this year. Um, recruiting, the crosstown rivalry, the rivalries that a lot of these guys have had growing up and, and knowing, uh, uh, seeing some familiar faces. I think that definitely plays a factor. It's certainly a talking point. Um, I remember, what was it, 20 – keep going back to old games. Uh, but one of the years it was uh, T. Martin was getting getting into it with uh, the DB coach for UCLA. I'm blanking on his name. I'm, like they were getting into it middle field. And so there, there's an edge to him, right? There's a competition, and uh, it certainly is a talking point and a point of motivation for, uh, for USC this week. Before we get to predictions – one other factor I want to consider here is there's been a lot of talk this week about the Pac-12 tiebreaker situation where essentially USC is going to edge out Colorado if they even if they both win because USC had COVID and they didn't play the game. Now, that's not to say that USC wouldn't have won that game and just answered that question outright that way, but USC can finish 5-0 and in the conference, Colorado can finish 4-0, and uh, USC will have also played more division games as a result of all the uh, schedule upheaval this year, and that will be the tiebreaker. And uh, there were questions to the Pac-12 office, are you going to adjust anything to address this? And they said, no, we're, we're leaving things as is. Max, do you think there should be an adjustment? And let me throw out my proposal to you first. I think we should just acknowledge that the Pac-12 is not getting into a playoff. They're not getting into the college football playoff. So why not push the Pac-12 title game back a week, have a week of makeup games or whatever games, allow USC and Colorado to play, so then at least your Pac-12 title has no questions or asterisk of any kind about it, and you have played out that part of things to the fullest extent. You know that you have the most deserving teams in from both sides, and then you have a Pac-12 champion. And if nothing else, you have gotten that facet of the football season done without controversy. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, I think that is the answer. Um, I would love to see that happen, but I'm also not naive to the fact that it's kind of hard to do that like a week out. It feels kind of off the cuff, which is always a little uneasy to me as a commissioner, as a decision maker in this conference. The second the USC-Colorado uh, game got canceled, you should be going through every scenario known to man. And right there, yeah. you should – I don't mind if you make a switch right then saying, well, if the team wins out and – like, because everyone's, everyone's going by week, week to week in all aspects of life this year. And so I don't mind kind of adjusting on the fly, but I think that needed to be done a couple of weeks ago of saying, hey, if it plays out where we're not in uh, – um, the, the playoff contention, then this could happen. As I say that out loud, I'm sure there's some Pac-12 loyalists that would have been saying, hey, you're you're throwing up the white flag before uh, the CFP even makes a decision. And so you're never going to make everyone well. You're never going to make anyone uh, everyone happy. The one point I will say is if you're a Colorado fan, this is the second time you've gotten screwed over bowl, um, bowl layout. And what I mean by that is, don't recall USC fans. USC got a bone in 2016 uh, for the 2017 Rose Bowl. The, my last year at USC, Colorado came out of the South, had to play uh, Washington, I, w- I believe it was, and they lost. Washington went to the CFP. Colorado then fell below USC in the rankings. USC got the Rose Bowl invite. And so as a result, Colorado got hurt by playing in the Pac-12 championship game. And so that's, I mean, yes, that, that's just kind of how the cookie crumbles. But if you're a CU fan, you can very well convince yourself that it's two years in recent memory that they have gotten screwed out of a big-time uh, bowl game potentially. Yeah, and, and that's why I would have just removed any kind of question from the scenario. I agree with you, though. It's too late to do that now. It had to be decided earlier because you're going into this game with the expectation understanding of 
if we do this, then this happens. And I think it's too late to change that. But that would have been the solution to me. And, um, I mean, honestly, at this point, playing a, a likely two-loss North team is not going to do anything to help the Pac-12 South champion uh, in the CFP consideration to begin with. That Colorado game would probably be more valuable for USC's uh, – case if there even is a case but it's all moot it's not going to happen and if usc just wins this weekend they are in with that said max let's close with predictions <laughs> what is your pick for saturday oh i will go i will go uh, i'll go a little rivalry thriller i'll go 31 28 usc Oh no! Yeah, I'll go thirty-one twenty-eight USC. Uh, I like what this UCLA defense is doing, and I think they're going to turn on the blueprint from uh, a few weeks prior and and see some of the success that uh, teams have had against USC. And I'm just thinking it's going to be one of those rivalry games where you can predict all you want, but uh, it's just and and you can try to reason all you want, but uh, it ends up just being a close one down to the wire. And I just get that sense uh, this week a little bit. Well, the reason I reacted like that because I had written my score down, <laughs> and it, my score is USC thirty-one twenty-seven. <laughs> okay, so the UCLA g- kicking game getting some love, or maybe not some love yeah. if they miss an extra point. But <laughs> either either way, yeah. it can go either way. But uh, no, I, I think it'll be close. I think we'll be talking about the running game again next week, and that's fine. That's fine, especially if it if it proves to be a a necessary component of the game they're lacking. If they can't do it all through the air and the lack of running game rears its ugly head and costs them a shot of the Pac-12 title, then trust me, I will give it all the airtime possible in the next podcast. But we will see what happens. I'm kind of excited that we have some stakes. I know it's a weird season. I know it's it's not going to feel like the same accomplishment maybe as it would in other years, but... I'm excited that there's real stakes on this game and that we could be talking about a Pac-12 title game next week if things go well. No doubt. This was, pl- this was fun, and uh, let's, go get, uh, let's go get this win. All right. We're, we're back at you Monday with the recap. Until then, check Trojansports.com, and Max will have his weekly br- video breakdown, film room, whiteboard breakdown on Wednesday, and it's going to be a good one because they're all good ones. Uh, check it out. Sounds good.